Welcome to the Dr. Raj podcast with Dr. Raj Desgupta, a show all about educating patients, students, and aspiring doctors about better patient care. Dr. Raj is a quadruple board certified physician and associate professor at the University of Southern California. He was a co-host of the TNT series, Chasing the Cure with Ann Curry, as well as a regular on the TV show, The Doctors. And now, here's our show. Hi, and welcome to the Dr. Raj podcast. And what is this a podcast of? A podcast of happiness and wellness, of amazing people, of strong stories. And yes, we do have some medicine on the podcast. And what is a very common problem that a lot of people have? Uh, Sleep. So today, we have an amazing, media-savvy sleep specialist, Dr. Shelby Harris. And before I introduce her, of course, you know the routine, everyone. I got to have to read the bio first. So, you know, Dr. Shelby Harris is a clinical psychologist and sleep specialist in private practice in New York. She's a board certified in behavioral sleep medicine and treats a wide variety of sleep, anxiety, and depression issues using, I love these words, evidence-based, and non-medication treatments. Her self-help book, A Women's Guide to Overcoming Insomnia, Get a Good Night's Sleep Without Relying on Medication, was published in 2019. Dr. Harris holds a dual academic appointment as clinical associate professor at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine in both neurology and psychiatry. Before going into private practice, she was the long-standing director of the Behavioral Sleep Medicine Program at the Sleep-Wake Disorder Center at Montefiore Medical Center. Dr. Harris has been an invited columnist for the New York Times consult blog and is frequently quoted in the media, including the New Yorker, Washington Post, She has appeared on the Today Show, Good Morning America, and CBS Mornings. Dr. Harris can also be found on Instagram at at SleepDocShelby, where she provides evidence-based information about sleep wellness and sleep disorders. With that being said, Shelby, thank you for being here today. Thank you for having me. I'm really happy to be here, Raj. Thanks for talking. And like I just said before we started recording, I feel I know you already. I I put my Instagram (laughs) on. And one day when we're off air, can you tell me the secret sauce to get millions of followers? I need to do what you're doing, dude. (laughs) I wish I had that secret sauce. I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm just posting random things that come up in my head. So I like them, though. I like them, though. You know, it was funny. You did one recently, though, and I think you were outdoor and it was so windy. I couldn't hear you. I was really frustrated. So next time, Shelby, be careful of the wind on your recordings, okay? running along the Seine. So I think a good background, but that's good to know. I'm glad to hear that. It was funny. It was like <laughs> obstructive sleep apnea. And I'm like, blowing away. So with that being said, let's do a little meet and greet. And um, so why, why did you want to be a psychologist and what was your motivation, you know, going into that? So I, you know, I've just always been interested in why people do what they do. I don't know. It was just something I always, I always like to ask questions and just was interested in motivation and behavior and all that stuff. And so when I went to college, I just decided to really go full on into it. I was just fascinated with it. Oh, wow. But you went to college in Brown University, Smarty Mm -hmm. Pants, and you got a, and I feel like I'm a stalker now, and you got a Bachelor's of Arts in music. Yeah. So I just don't see how that even relates. And 
Do you play an instrument? <laughs> yeah. So growing up, I was a bit, I was a piano player for a long time. And then when I was in 10th grade, um, I was in a string orchestra at high in high school. It was a very good string orchestra. And I, I was grew up in Rhode Island and I was playing the piano in the back and I had like one little part and I was so bored. And I looked at the bassists and I said, they are having fun. And so I actually in 10th grade picked up the upright bass and that was my main instrument. And when I went to college, I, the thing about Brown mm-hmm. is that there are no core requirements until you pick your major. <laughs> so I was in the orchestra, very active, but I was doing psychology full force. I was taking other classes too, but I was fully on in psychology that I actually finished the major in like two and a half years that I had time. And I was like, you know, let's major in music too and just learn something. So I actually debated um, when I graduated whether to go into classical music and work at like um, Lincoln Center because I had some, there were some connections through through Brown there. Or whether to go into music. So I took a year off to decide what I wanted to do. I played in orchestras at night and then worked in medical research and psychiatry at Brown. Wow. So do you still play the piano? Do you have a piano? Or are you doing more of the strings now? And do you still practice? I have a piano. I actually have the piano that I grew up with. I had it taken down into New York from Rhode Island. And my daughter is playing the piano now. She's seven. And my yeah. son, actually, he's 13. He picked up, He got sick of the piano and picked up the bass. And he plays way better than I did when I was in 10th grade. So he's the bassist. I kind of play with them once in a while, but they don't. It's funny. I could teach them both. They want nothing to do with me. <laughs> so they both take lessons and I listen and I'll tweak little bits here and there, but I, I stay out of it. So, yeah. You know, Shelba, I knew we, we had to be friends. So in yeah. on one liner, my wife initially wanted to do piano. She has a, a mini grand. She brought it down from Maryland. Yes. I have a daughter too. She started piano, but she kind of now likes strings, just like you said. Okay. And yep. she's debating between, I feel like I'm a snooty guy. I'm not snooty, everyone. My daughter is debating whether violin or the cello, but we relate. I feel like you're my sister, kind of, you know? Exactly. No, it's like, <laughs> I would argue the bass for your daughter because really, girl bassists are, excuse my language, badass. <laughs> I love there it. There were not many of them when I was growing up. I was, now there's more. But there's something about there's something so powerful and commanding about playing the bass. Yeah, and like rounds an orchestra, and it's so versatile. So you can play it in jazz. You can play so many different. My my son plays the electric bass. It's just yeah. so cool. So ah. I put in a vote for that. Man, we should have had a podcast on music. <laughs> but um, there you go. but you know, this is weird. This is pretty weird. But my next question is because um, my wife is actually a marathon runner. And I'm always bragging about her. I'm sorry. But you are a marathon runner. So how long have you been into it? And what what was your favorite marathon moment? And when did you complete your first marathon? I started, I was not a runner. I was a tennis player in high school. And they would make us run a mile in high school. And I'd, I'd hate it. I'd complain about it the whole time. And then when I got to be almost 30, I was working at Montefiore in their sleep center. And I was really out of shape from all the years of graduate school and just getting married. I was very, very overweight. And just real, I saw the writing on the wall. And I have a lot of family history of cardiovascular issues and diabetes and all these things. And I went to a doc and he was like, you're on that trajectory. And I got a little scared at 29. So I said, what can I do? And he said, start exercising. And I realized that I was telling my patients, especially the ones who had apnea that could be modified with some weight loss. I was saying to them and my insomnia patients, I was like, work out a little, get some movement, eat properly. And I wasn't following it. And there's a lot of research looking at patients following the instructions if they actually believe their doctor follows it. 
And it really hit me. And at that point, I said, I'm going to do this. But I, I kind of go full on in if you haven't figured that out for me yet. So I joined Team in Training, which is a group with the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. And oh. they take you and I have a lot of there was a lot of lymphoma in my family. And I decided to raise money for them. And they take you from starting to finish. They train you in a marathon in about six to eight months. And they take wow. you there. And I did my first one was the Marine Corps Marathon in 2008. And that one, they got me to, I finished in five hours and 13 minutes. I never thought I would do a marathon and I got the bug and I've done 20 since then. And I've gotten faster and faster. I'm taking the spring off right now, but my favorite one, it's hard to pick because I've done so many um, in very different areas. I always love New York and I've done New York a lot of times because it's my local race. But I think my favorite one was actually Boston in 2014 because I did it. qualified. I qualified twice, but I did in 2000, I was actually in the 2013 marathon. Oh, I'm sorry about that. But I did that for a narcolepsy fundraiser. No way. Yeah. Wake up narcolepsy. I raised money for them. And then because I I was so close to the finish line and I didn't get to finish, they let everyone do it again in 2014. And I did it then. And as scared as I was, the energy on that course, the, and I'm from new England. So the Boston energy, it was just so memorable. It was really a, a, a race for like life and resilience and just fighting back. And that's that I would say is my favorite one. So I'm going to bug you next year. My wife did the LA marathon this year and we always run for a group called Keen, K-E-E-N. Kids enjoy exercise. Now it's for autistic kids. And so, yes, I'm going to bug you and have you run the LA marathon. You'll have fun. I need to. I need to do that one. I've been (laughs) wanting to do it. So definitely get them. Yes. Okay. I'm going to bug you on that one. All right. So, Let's go. Now we finally funnel down the behavioral sleep medicine. So why sleep? You know what I mean? We really funnel down and why behavioral sleep and what is behavioral sleep medicine? So I got interested in just the sleep area of psychology, which there aren't many of us. When I was actually, when I took that year off between undergrad and graduate school, trying to Mm -hmm. figure out what I wanted to do, I worked in research and um, addiction studies and they had me going to rehabs for alcoholism. And people who were in early rehab, we were actually using, at the time we were using medication, we were using trazodone, because the idea was if you get someone to sleep better early on in their recovery, it actually helps to reduce relapse rates. So we found that lo and behold, someone sleeps better, they're not going to reach for alcohol as fast. And that just, that light bulb went off in my head and said, if you can make those changes in someone who's struggling at that moment. Why are we ignoring this in so many other areas of our life? And this was before everyone was talking about sleep wellness and all that sort of stuff. This was like 2000. Yeah. And then I went to graduate school and started to really focus on it and insomnia and nightmare work. And then at Montefiore, they had an amazing sleep clinic there that really trained me. And so what behavioral sleep medicine is, there's a lot of people out there who do, who are psychologists who do like CBTI. So they have a very specific, because they got trained in the insomnia stuff, but behavioral sleep medicine specialists are really much more comprehensive. So we understand not just insomnia inside and out, but we deal with, it's always evidence-based, but we deal with narcolepsy, non-pharmacologic methods to help with narcolepsy, excessive sleepiness disorders, issues with apnea, non-compliance, nightmares, sleepwalking, the whole gamut. Because a lot of times in sleep medicine, you've got to work on the behavioral stuff as well as whatever the medication or the um, treatment is that's been prescribed for them. Okay, I'm gonna do I'm gonna do a self-serving question because sure. in the sleep world, I mean my passion is narcolepsy. Not that I ignore everyone else, 
But, you know, I always like the David and Goliath story where it needs more awareness. And you promote the same things I promote. What are some, uh, just for me, what are some good behavioral things that you do for your narcoleptic patients? Because I feel like I'm just a drug pusher. You know, I'm I'm writing prescriptions left and right. What what are some good behavioral things maybe I can learn from, you know, to help? When it comes to narcolepsy, it's very, I find it to be very much personalized, specific care based on what the person's lifestyle is and what they're, because you can say take naps all day long, but if they're at work or they have little kids, it's just not going to necessarily work. But I, you know, working on that person, sometimes I'll build in some 20 minute naps if we have to 90 minute naps. We really personalize that personalized caffeine use. Yeah. We, we know that a, a higher carb diet in patients with narcolepsy can lead to more sleepiness as well as weight gain issues. Um, we work on that aspect. I work a lot on the psychological aspect of what narcolepsy can do, leading we see higher rates of depression in patients with some, some patients with narcolepsy. So we work on that. We work on issues of guilt, shame. I try to incorporate as much as possible the family and the environment around them because if their family is telling them, well, there's just get up. You're what the, it's all in your head. The, all that sort of invalidating stuff, really, there needs to be a lot of education and support from employers from the family, everyone around to really support the patient so that they can do whatever the strategies are that were recommended. I love that. So you're kind of like a sleep life coach and you have a a very specific plan for that specific patient. That's Mm -hmm. awesome. Yeah. And that makes sense now while you're doing private practice and that's what you, oh my God, I love it. Thank you. I love, I did it at the sleep center for a long time, but it just got so pressured of like, you have to do this in this amount of time that private practice does allow me the time to really breathe, to see patients weekly, do things on zoom. It's much more flexible, which is what I really love. I wanted to say that, uh, the CBTI, and that's something yeah. that's, I know that's very common language amongst us sleep people, but yeah. what is it? You know what I mean? And I know because you had the experience of being in a university setting and doing private practice, is there any difference in the way you deliver it to your patients? You know what I mean? Yeah. Is the university kind of more teach, 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 and it's more individualized in private practice. Any difference? Yeah. I mean, I think when I was at Montefiore in that setting, there were so many patients constantly, you know, like you think about university settings and academic medical centers, right? It's a lot of like, see, perform as much as possible. And that was, that was a challenge. And I had less amount of time to spend with patients. And I would often see people once a month, sometimes once every two weeks, if I could for follow-up. So it'd be very instructional, um, do this, do this, do this. And if there was any anxiety or depression as well going on, I would often refer out because I didn't have the ability to see someone more weekly. In private practice, I have much more flexibility. So I do sometimes see patients. I had a patient this morning that I was finishing with that I saw for 15 minutes. Oh, like there's nothing nothing to... Beat them over the head with the same relapse prevention stuff over and over. They're doing great. Goodbye. I'll see you later. But other patients come to me. We're working on the sleep and it's clear there's other anxiety, depression, and then we can kind of shift our focus and be more fluid in it, which is nice. Okay. Now I'm just getting free information from you. So, you know, um, kids, adolescents, using that broad word versus adults. I think, and you could make fun of me, it's harder to do CBT in, in kids and adolescents. You know what I mean? Because they're kids and teenagers, you know, like yeah. you do, is it, do you feel the same way? Is, is it approached differently? You know what I mean? Yeah. No, I mean, I think a lot of the times I do. So CBT for insomnia is really, yeah. we don't focus on CBT. right. So they're having trouble falling asleep, staying asleep or awakening yeah. too early. And no matter what the window of time they have to sleep in, they just, you know this, but they can't sleep enough. Like it's just yeah. not going to happen. 
So I do get that from time to time. And I'm seeing it more and more with the pandemic in kids and teens. We didn't see classic insomnia that much in kids and teens for a long time. It wasn't presenting that much. I see a lot of kids or teens, especially or preteens, who have circadian rhythm issues. So they Uh can't go to bed until late naturally. And then they have to get up early to go to school. So it looks like they have insomnia only getting four or five hours a night. But the reality is, if you didn't have to wake them up, they could sleep 9, 10, 11 hours every single day. So those are the patients that I tend to get more of and working. And a lot of it is teen has to be willing to fix the problem. So (laughs) in your your private practice, uh, Dr. Shelby, are they are they willing to make the changes or they they tend to be stubborn with you? (laughs) Half and half. Some of them are very high achieving teens see it affecting their grades and they're worried about college and they're worried about that sort of stuff. Other ones are like, well, my school is giving me a free period in the morning or two free periods. So like sometimes the schools actually enable the problem. Well said, well said. I have to to talk with the school about it. And so it's, and sometimes it's the parents who don't want to actually put their foot down and be like, you can't keep your in your room because that's probably problem problem. So it it varies, uh-huh. but I do have more and more teens that are wanting to work on it. Okay. And the other side of it, flip side, is working on school start times. Yes. So in my town, I was able to. I was kind of obnoxious and worked with them, but <laughs> we were able to shift our middle and high school to eight thirty minimum start. For, wow, so, that's huge. And I know in California that's the law now, right? Is it? Yes. Well, you know what? Me, you will be. Very, you know, we'll be proud of us. The American Academy of Sleep Medicine. That's their jam. You know what yep. I mean? And of course, you just kind of summarize it in your answer. But yeah, good for you. It's not easy to do that. But I could see you being a very nice, smart, annoying person. <laughs> it was. I was trying to push it. But interestingly, I was trying to push it before the pandemic. You were? But really? once, yeah. But okay. once the pandemic hit, they actually were doing everything virtual and with the 9 a.m. start for the high school. Yeah. And everyone, the teachers, the, the parents were like, you know, my kid's actually doing better. So I was able to piggyback on that a lot That's more good. Yeah. and then got it working. Get the momentum going. Yeah. So for, you know, for CBTI, cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, you know, I wanted to ask you this because it's hard for me. I'm only going to blame myself to do really good CBTI with my patients. You know I mean? It's just not easy to do the successions, 20 to 30 minutes. So mm-hmm. sometimes, sometimes, you know, people ask me or I'll use apps. So yeah. I just wanted to ask you this question. Uh, do you recommend apps? And we're not a branded program, but okay. is there are certain apps that you like a little bit more, a little bit less. And what do you look for in an app? I look for an app that is going to initially, I mean, if you're seeing it and recommending it to, I'm assuming you've like evaluated the patient, you're making sure there's no significant sleep apnea, all that sort of stuff. But some of the apps, you know, I want something that's still going to ask those questions to rule out anything else to maybe go to their doctor. But I actually really like the apps. I love Sleepio, the CBTI coach through the VA is another good one. I think there's some really, Sleepio is one of my favorite ones, Um, but they're really good apps, especially for people who are in the initial first maybe six months of insomnia, I don't really know where to go. I think people have had insomnia for a long time can definitely benefit for them. The challenge I think with them is if someone has a lot of comorbidity, so they have a lot of anxiety, depression, motivation issues, or medical issues, and a lot of medication use. So I think that the apps are more challenging if someone is taking Ambien, let's say daily, or relying on other benzos, and then they need to get off of them while doing the app, then I think working with someone personally is better. Good answer, by the way. Very good answer. I think you're right. I mean, if you just have your air quote, you know, straightforward insomnia, which doesn't really exist, but yes, I agree. The more you, 
kind of tack on meds and stuff. Well, good, great answer. Hey, I know this is one of your things and my things is that anytime I go on social media, I'm always hearing and reading about sleep hacks. You know what yeah. I mean? I'm telling you, TikTok must be the king or queen of sleep hacks, yeah. you know? So yeah. I just want to know, do you have some, some favorite sleep hacks of your own? And I, I kind of wrote a couple down here and I put some extra here just to put you on the spot. So the ones I wrote down on my paper, I wrote down weighted blankets, pet in the bed. And the other two I just added, you know, to throw you off your game is magnesium and CBD. You want to comment on some of those things? I think it's fine. If you want to use them and they work for you, I think the weighted blankets especially are really good for patients who have a lot of anxiety. Yeah. problem is, you know, even with magnesium, we just don't have like tons of research to be like, this is going to solve the problem. I think if you're someone, the problem with hacks, in my opinion, is that they get thrown out there like it's going to solve every sleep issue. And the reality is you can't can't (laughs) hack your way out of a chronic insomnia. It's just not going to work. Like sleep hygiene, all that stuff is not going to do it. So I think if you have occasional problems here and there, try it. I have patients who are like, you know, CBD helps me. I'm like, fine. But more often than not, the people come to me, they've tried all these things and it doesn't do anything. (laughs) I 100% agree with you. Do you have a, do you have a, do you have a pet? Uh, I don't. You don't? See, that's the one thing we're separate. I'm sorry. I swear you'd have a family dog for some reason. I grew up with dogs, but my husband is allergic to them. So we stay away. And, you know, the husband definitely has higher priority than than the dog. I agree with you. So on that note, you know what I mean? Uh, What's your opinion about like uh, technology and sleep? And the reason why I'm saying this is that when we talk about diagnosing insomnia, monitoring insomnia, everyone's got something on their wrist or on their finger or a ring. I'm not branded by anyone. what What do you think about these sleep tracking devices? What's your opinion? So it's, it's a, sticky issue. And I think the thing is that when people are always talking about like sleep hacks, sleep hygiene trackers, what, what are the things to do to improve your sleep? They're never making the difference, the distinction between people who have chronic insomnia, who really routinely three or more nights a week for multiple weeks on end, multiple months have trouble with sleep versus the person who has the occasional night and is a normal, like a human being that doesn't have actual chronic insomnia. The the person wants to optimize. We love the word optimize online. So the person wants to optimize their sleep Mm -hmm. That might be the person that an aura ring or a whoop watch, like those things are actually, I think, can give someone data into how does alcohol affect my sleep? What's my heart rate typically? How much, like people who burn the candle at both ends, like in New York, who are probably in LA too, who are like working crazy hours, who don't get enough sleep. I think these are things to really highlight that for you. But we know in insomnia research, and I see it day in and day out of my practice, People who have insomnia already make sleep a priority that they don't need other things to then highlight that their their sleep is a problem. And when people are worried about their sleep and constantly looking for verification about certain things, that's what worsens their insomnia. Yep. So I tell people, get rid of it. Who have insomnia. And we call um, orthosomnia. This is what, what Kelly Barron uh, had termed it as in one of her papers. So it's a great term and it really does fit. And I tell patients, it's very diagnostic for me. If someone has a paper sleep diary that they give, I'm pretty old school, I give them the paper sleep diary. If they refuse to do it and then just print out their sleep watch data, then I know that this is going to be someone I'm going to have to have a big talk with and get them off of their reliance on that stuff. I don't know, Shelby. I mean, I'm, I'm sure you have a good practice, but these are expensive. I can't afford, you know, my own aura ring. So I... I <laughs> Remember, I work in the New York City area. I have patients who have like Gucci ones. Oh, I didn't even know that. I didn't even know there was a Gucci, oh, there's a Gucci one. branded one that was like $1,000. I uh, Yeah. 
Oh I've my seen, god. I've seen them all. <laughs> I believe you. Well, I want to talk about something you've done that really is impressive. And it's and you have a book. And I mm-hmm. mentioned it during our intro. The Women's Guide to Overcoming Sleep Insomnia. Get a good night's sleep without relying on medication. So so what was the motivation behind writing this book and, and why women? So I had wanted to write a book for a long time, but I was, I had one kid. I wasn't sure about the timing. Although I, actually, when I was there at Einstein and Montefiore at the time, they were really good about giving me some academic time to start writing. It was kind of a lucky happenstance sort of thing. I had done some columns for the New York Times with my director, Michael Thorpe, and uh, an editor from Norton Books, part of Penguin, um, had seen those. And she reached out to me because she liked the way that I wrote. I try to write like I'm talking to my patients, like very just, you know, as it's a conversation. And so we were brainstorming. And she said to me, she's like, what's most of the population other than insomnia? Like, what do you see? And I realized, like, this was before everyone was talking about menopause over the past few years. Like, what? This is we're talking 2017. And I said, you know, it's mostly women. And it's women who are going through various life stages, just having had a baby, perimenopause, menopause. And that's when we decided to really focus it on that because there really, at that time, there was nothing out there about it. And the book came out in 2019. And I'm so, I'm lucky in a way, because it kind of has snowballed along with all the other stuff that's come out. No. And remember, that's how I found you. I saw on this book, you're like, Raj, this book is out for a year already. I know. But, you know, honestly, you know, I will say this when it comes to women, whether I'm wearing my pulmonary hat, you know, we do a poor job in diagnosing COPD, obstructive yeah. sleep apnea, and definitely insomnia. And, you know, it's, I have my patients who are women who are asking me, hey, Raj, I'm perimenopausal. I can't relate as well. You know, and I can tell you what I think you should do. And I try my hardest, but I think that's a really good motivation that you have there. And what was the um, the hardest part in, in writing the book? And do you have a... Um, Favorite chapter? Oh, that's an interesting one. Um, <laughs> the hardest part in writing it was actually just writing it, in all honesty. <laughs> I signed the book deal. Mm-hmm. The foolishness of women. I signed <laughs> the book deal when I was nine months pregnant with my second. And I said to myself, I'll have time during maternity leave to write a book. I was a fool. Um, <laughs> so it took me a long time to write it. So finding time in the evening and finding time during my one academic day that I had at Montefiore and all that sort of stuff just to build it in was really a challenge because the writing of it, weirdly, it sounds ter- like crazy to say it, the writing of it was not that hard for me because I really wrote it as if I was talking to my patients. That's good. So the yeah. wording came out easily because it's what I do. Favorite chapter, I would say, I like the cognitive therapy chapter because people don't talk about the cognitive therapy stuff so much. They don't. Like how to challenge some of the thoughts. I like that stuff a lot. So there you go. So I got to know now with you, uh, what are your goals? You are young, you're successful. What are, What is your plans going into the future? So the reason I started Instagram, honestly, in 2020, mm-hmm. like 2020, I remember, was because my publisher for the book was like, they totally missed the ball. Like, okay, everyone's talking, everyone has insomnia now sleep problems with the pandemic. Women are really finally talking about this. Um, So that's why I started Instagram is to get more information out there to the public about insomnia treatments. And it's not just medication. Medication has its place. And I don't ever want people to think that I don't think it does. It just doesn't have to be the only place or the only place that we start. So I want to do more stuff. And I think everyone's talking about sleep wellness too. I want to help bridge the gap between what's sleep wellness versus insomnia and what can we do to help prevent insomnia because it's so common. And when we start seeing the signs of it, if we're doing wellness stuff, sleep hygiene, 
when we start to see the signs of insomnia, what can we then start to do? So whether it's corporate stuff, more stuff online, I work with a lot of um, corporate groups to try and get that information out there that it's not just about bubble baths and winding down before bed, that there are other things that we can be doing. And that's, that's kind of my goal is to see patients, but also work more in just education of the general population. I don't know how, if you will have these answers hidden somewhere. These are awesome answers. Oh, thank you. <laughs> how did you pull that one up? And yes, that's I me. Mean, I'm even confused about sleep wellness and all these things. That's a really good answer. So, man, you've done this so many times. Like, you knew how long the podcast should be. You knew that a too long thing is not the way to go. You're amazing. So last question. People are going to want to know more about you after this, for sure. Not that you're not popular enough, but um, where can someone go to learn more about you or to buy your book? Can you give me some tips? So the book is easy to get on Amazon, The Women's Guide to Overcoming Insomnia. You can go to my website, www.dr, like Dr. drshelbyharris.com. Or the easiest way, honestly, that a lot of people find me nowadays is on Instagram at sleepdocshelby. I am sort of on TikTok, barely. I can't figure out TikTok. TikTok is like a whole other world for me. I feel too old for it sometimes. Am I gonna am I gonna find you dancing? Are you gonna do like a cabbage patch or something on TikTok or something? No. no. <laughs> Good. I cannot figure out TikTok. But you can find me there too. I just can't even figure out how to respond to people on TikTok yet. I'm trying to figure it out. So there you go. Well, with that being said. Shelby, you are truly amazing. You're just as cool as I thought you were on Instagram as in as in person. Don't change anything about you. I'm so glad we got to meet finally and talk. So thank you. That was the Dr. Raj podcast. This was a really fun episode. I'm not just saying that it really was fun. And please stay tuned for our next episode coming up. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of Ars Longa Media. Our producers are Madison Linden and Chris Brightigan. Our executive producer is Dr. Patrick Beeman. This podcast is for educational purposes only and not intended for medical advice. Ars Longa, Vita Brevis.